0: Well, it's good to see all of you. You look marvelous, I might say. It's a good-looking group. I would say above average, okay? Like, like Garrison Keillor's uh, hometown, Lake Wobegon. Um, so I want to talk about uh, something this morning. I'm going to talk about, uh, well, of course, I do every morning, but um, I want to talk about grace. Before I get there, I want to talk about the mess of the, the world in which we live. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, there's sin in the world, and uh, there're You know, one of the very first uh, things that was uncovered a number of years ago uh, was in ancient Ugaritic. They found what they believe was the most ancient writing uh, that was written in the Mesopotamian area. And uh, they said, the very first thing was it said, children have become disobedient to their parents, and the world is in chaos, and the leaders, in other words, politicians, are not honest. So... um, so we find that in, you know, that's probably about 2200 BC, not a lot's changed, right? So we have uh, the, the same kinds of things that, that uh, t- transpire, you know, right after the fall. I don't know, that's I think when mosquitoes were created and, and weeds were created and all that kind of thing. So it's a mess. So it's in the environment of kind of a mess that we have church, and the reason we have church is because we want to be a place of redemption and transformation to help people out of that mess, right? I mean, that's what it is. I guess I didn't understand that when I signed up to be a pastor. So when I first went to seminary, I was excited about learning Hebrew, and uh, in fact, I was able to quote at least the first couple of verses of Psalm 23 with them in my head And I had to sit here and check and make sure I got it right, that I could still remember it in Hebrew. And then Greek, uh, and and we studied Greek. In fact, somebody uh, one time when I was in seminary and had uh, been learning Greek, he just decided to stand up in uh, the service and just start reciting the Lord's Prayer in uh, Greek. And so he stood up and said, And as soon as he got about halfway through the Lord's Prayer in Greek, um... Somebody said we don't speak tongues here, so <laughs> I thought that was that was kind of cute. Neither was he. He was just speaking Greek, uh, giving the Lord's prayer. Then, um, but anyway, I remember going to seminary to learn the languages, to learn the Bible, to learn theology, to to uh, to become uh, better equipped to do this wonderful ministry of coming in and and uh, and working in the church, which is a blessed group. And I mean, you know, you just look around. There's great people in here, right? What I forgot is that we're here to actually help people, recover people, restore people out of that mess because people are in a mess. And so I started finding that a lot of the things that I thought I was prepared to do, which I thought at the time was to help good people get a little bit better, I found that I was to help people who are lost to be found by the Lord... And to be discovered and have all their brokenness uh, restored. And there was a lot of brokenness. I remember the very first church I served, I had someone that came to me and confessed that they'd committed a murder and got away with it. I didn't know what to say. Other than, well, let's pray about that, and then let's call the authorities. (laughs) Um, You know, messy divorces, uh, child abusers trying to help pedophiles reintegrate into society, and some of them to find the Lord and come into the church and make sure you protect your children in the church. We had a fellow that uh, at Timberview, when we planted that church up on the north side, um, a number of years after we came back from the Philippines, I remember we had a guy who had been convicted as an adult, been tried as an adult, who had been convicted of murder, as, uh, how old was Joe? 15 or something like that? So he was in a prison for, I think, about 23 years. He got out of prison when he was about uh, 39 years old, I think he was, and came to our church. I remember walking in the parking lot one day, and we have a we had a guy in the church at the time who had a personalized plate, and I remember Joe, one of the very first weeks, he's come out you walk down, and he, he looked in, and he said, hey, I made that plate. <laughs> so, uh, you know... He had that kind of background, and so, you know, we were trying to help him to reintegrate into society, because he hadn't been in the real world outside of prison since he was 15 years old, and uh, so mess after mess after mess after mess, um, and so the marvelous thing is, is there's a possibility of grace in these circumstances. Sometimes the messes get so messy, we get drawn into it in some way, right? If you've ever been a family member of somebody who's gotten in some kind of trouble um, and you've gotten swept in it, or maybe you're in a legal deal. Uh, When we lived in the Philippines, we started a church in a very poor area, a place called Latre, it was in the city of Malabon, which is Metro Manila area, and um, it was a very poor area, no evangelical church had ever been started there. There was a Catholic church, which there typically is, and it was right kind of in the middle of the square. But um, we decided we'd plant a church there. Well, I, I asked some people, why, have, why has nobody ever come here and planted a church? And they kind of explained to me that there was there was a lot of drug running and thievery, and they were dealing with arms and stuff like that. I found out later that the Japanese Yakuza, which is kind of the mafia, uh, controlled things in that particular area, and there were some corrupt people in the community that oversaw things. You could certainly tell who they were because there were only three big places in this very poor place with all these, we called them kubo, but they're just little shanty uh, you know, um, uh, homes that really aren't homes. They were just kind of makeshift. And it was where squatters essentially were. And uh, we would i would walk around there and I would talk to people about Jesus. And we started a school because a lot of those kids didn't have access to education. And so we started kindergarten first and then expanded to an elementary school and, and uh, started the church. Well, the thing that happened there, it shows you kind of the mess, is a lot of our young people that had come to know the Lord, we had a thing called Bible basketball for the boys and Bible volleyball for the girls, and we would buy them uniforms. Of course, they'd never had uniforms in that impoverished area, and so um, and they, but they would have to come and they would hear Bible stories. And many of them gave their lives to the Lord, and then we'd play volleyball or basketball, and uh, one uh, day, when I was holding church in there, and we had our services um, typically on, like, th- they had, we had a, an event on Thursday, and then we had another event on, on Sunday. And so I was out there preaching. And the the Catholic church, they had a kind of a off-campus um, little place that was outdoor, and they gave, graciously allowed us to meet there, and so we started the church. Well, a lot of these young people were giving up their life of thievery, of Stealing things and all that kind of stuff, and a lot of them had quit uh, dealing with drugs and all of that. So it was it was similar to here in the United States, where you certain areas of certain cities you don't go very safely. So I was preaching there uh, one morning, and I knew who the leaders were of the crime uh, part, and um, this the the head of the whole thing. His his name was Sammy. I won't mention his last name just for for uh, anonymity, but he. He always had about five or six or seven or eight people with guns that would travel around with him. And it kind of he ruled the place. And I remember I was going to preach a message on love. And I saw Sammy walk in the back. He was a little disturbed because some of the people had stopped doing the crime stuff, which uh, would help them. And I remember him standing in the back. None of the people could see him, just like if I were looking at somebody in the foyer right now. Uh, you wouldn't be able to see them, but I would. Well, the person, he was outside with all these guys with guns, and he folded his arms, and he looked at me, and at one point in time, he kind of pointed. You know, I was just like, I know who you are, or whatever. I think they were... I found out later that one of the reasons we were the only evangelical, evangelical church in that area that had about 70,000 people is because they were all run off before. And I thought, well... So I changed my message in that moment. I just decided to not preach on the love of Christ, but I thought I'd preach about Zacchaeus, you know, that little thieving, robbing, tax collector guy that took more than he deserved. And, and of course, I never looked up, uh, but I told the story about Zacchaeus and how, how Christ was willing to deliver him, but uh, he was so broken in heart that he was willing to give, you know, fourfold of anything he'd taken from other people. And he had the opportunity to turn his life around, and Jesus even... Uh, requested that he would go into his house that day and he said he referred to him as a child of Abraham and that means that he really is uh, God's people and but he had to turn he had to change do you follow there's a little reason why I did that you follow so as I was saying that Um, the people were responding (laughs) because, you know, it's just a general message. Uh, they didn't know that I was, for the first time in my life, I was actually preaching at somebody. Uh, usually I just preach the word and I gave people an opportunity to come forward and surrender their lives to Christ and get a new life and whatever it is. And we had a, the altar was lined. We had people that were coming up and praying. And I remember kneeling down and, uh, um, I was praying with uh, somebody to give their life to the Lord. And all of a sudden, I felt a c- cold metal thing tap me on the side of the head. And uh, I turned around. It was one of the guys, uh, one of the friends of Sammy, had kind of thumped me on the side of the head and in the middle of my prayer. And he said, um, he told me in Tagalog, he says, uh, you, Sammy wants to see you. And I said, "Okay, I'm praying with this young man." And so I returned to pray, and uh, he hit me a little harder and said, "Now." <laughs> so I thought, "Okay, now's a good time." So, so I got up and I, I got up and I followed the man and I turned the prayer duties over to some other people. And I remember going in uh, to this nice house that they had. They took me in there. And there were a couple of guys that were guarding me. And they sat down. Now, it's a hospitable culture, even though this was a violent person. And so they brought me some nice little sandwiches and a Coke (laughs) and a Coke and some crackers and with some cheese. Right, my friends? This is what you do, even if you're going to... So I remember looking at it and I I remember thinking, I thought my last meal would be (laughs) a little better than this, but Coke and cheese and crackers, I guess it'll have to do. So... I'm sitting there at the time and I thought, I really thought, uh, I'm done, I'm toast. So uh, Sammy walked in and he told the other guys to leave and he sat down right across from me. There was a little coffee table with these snacks and he sat in a chair and he looked right at me and, and he said, I want what Zacchaeus got. And I immediately started thinking about what would happen if he became a Christian that I hadn't really thought about? I wasn't thinking about the outcome. Because you know what happens when a corrupt person ceases their corruption. In an organized... I looked at him and I said, that's the best decision you'll ever make. And I went too far. I went past that. And then I said, and Sammy, we have some people that we can put you, we can take you to one of the islands, we can put you in a place, we can kind of get your identity change. We would change your name, whatever, and keep you safe. But I said, your first things first, you need to receive Christ. And he stopped me. And he said, I want to do that. But he said, let me ask you, did Zacchaeus change his name? I said, no. So we prayed. Sammy gave his life to the Lord. And that was wonderful. That was on Sunday. And he called meetings, and he started to change some things, etc., and by Thursday that week, only four or five days as a believer, he was shot nine times in the head, and he was killed, and I did his funeral. And I had to stay out of that community for a period of time because his cousin was next in line. And I thought at the time, I remember getting on a bus because I didn't dare drive my car there for, because of safety issues. I got on a bus to go home. I started crying, and I just said, God, this is just such a mess. You follow? What we need is we need grace. And that's what I want to share with you for just a few moments. But I started realizing at that time that grace is kind of this thing that all these churches talk about. We're a community of grace. We're a community of love. We love to, to embrace people that are lost, that are hurting, that are found. And so we kind of have this great spin on grace. But what grace is, is grace is like it's like the continental divide You're going to fall on one side or the other of this grace, and I don't mean be a recipient or a person who is not a recipient, but you're going to be a person who understands and appreciates it, either receives it or offers it to other people, or you're going to be just the opposite. You're going to be a person who ignores it, runs away from it, abuses it, and does not welcome it in others. And I started noticing when I was reading the pages of Scripture... That the overwhelming majority of people, their response to grace is not a good response. Every church I hear, I talk to, they say, we're a grace-filled community. Are you? We live by grace. Yes, we do. But do we offer it? Or does it get resented? And so I started noticing in pages of Scripture, and you'll see things like this that will be up on the screen. This is just one of the several passages that we could read, but this is in Mark chapter 3, which follows, by the way, Mark chapter 2, and I'll allude to that. Oh, that's brilliant, isn't it? Mark 2 is before number 3. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man was there with a shriveled hand. We already know from the previous chapter when a guy was lowered down through the roof that Jesus perceived the thoughts of the people that were in the room, right? So he knows what's going on. He knows precisely what all the people are thinking in there. And uh, he's making a point, and it really has dire consequences here. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus knew it was the Sabbath. They had already resisted him for doing good on the Sabbath because you're forbidden to do work, and they considered healing work. So, so Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, "'Stand up in front of anyone, everyone.'" And uh, the man's hand being shriveled, probably he was hiding it, or masking it at that time. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful, and he's not talking to the man, he's talking to the crowd, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them. Now, in chapter 2, it says he looked around and he perceived their thoughts. Same's going on here. And in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. So everybody celebrated, because this is an act of grace. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot, for the very first time, with Herodians that they hated. But nothing draws people together like a common enemy. And it says they began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus And the beginning of this whole episode of them wanting to bring, this is the first time where it talks about they wanted to kill Jesus. And what prompted it? Grace. An act of kindness. And this is not a strange one. I just mentioned earlier, it talked about, uh, and I I mentioned in chapter 2 earlier, we won't read that passage, but there are four friends that have a guy who's paralytic and they'd never been able to walk and they end up taking him up on the roof, tearing up the roof. Are you familiar with that story? They drop him down before Jesus. And Jesus wanted to talk about the most important thing, which was the forgiveness of the man. That's we uh, need to understand. Spiritual is always more more critical than the physical. I mean, you can you can you can live with a a bad arm, but I'll tell you what, if you're dying inside, that's a whole different level. And uh And so he looked around at the people, again, just like this, and he perceived their thoughts. And he said, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And he knew they were going to be furious at that because they thought to themselves, and it tells us in the text, it says they were angry because they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, it's the first time he kind of equates himself with the Father. He says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins I say to you, young man, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And they were furious. Every time you see an act of grace in the Bible, you will see when other people are mentioned in the story. There's more people. There are more people that are upset by the demonstration of grace than there are that are delighted by it. There's a, a story in, in Matthew chapter 20 about some people that went out and they were called. The guy needed it's harvest time. He needed some people to come in to harvest the stuff. So he called people at the beginning of the day and he offered to pay them a denarius for a day's work and they came in and he realized that wasn't going to be enough. He went out and got some more on the, the third watch of the day. It'd be about nine o'clock in the morning. Then he went out at, at noon. He called the, 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 well, excuse me, first watch second watch, third watch, is about noon and then the fourth watch of the day and he gets all the way to the end of the day about six o'clock and he hires for just kind of in the 11th hour a handful of people to come in and work and Jesus is using this as a story uh, about his grace but it it's also implies the nature of humanity in our response to God's generosity because at the end of the day he gave them all a denarius and I got to tell you they were all so excited they were thrilled they said look what I got is that the end of that story no There were more people, there was a sliver of people who came in and worked one hour that were delighted, I guarantee you, and there were a whole bulk of people that were probably furious. And that was a parable of Jesus to say something not only about his grace, but also human response to it. I can give you story after story like that, casting... Thousands of demons out of a man and into swine, and the swine go down over the bank, etc., and everybody's delighted because this man's been delivered. No livelihood is gone. They can't appreciate that, and they tell Jesus, get out of here, please. Are you with me? I can give you about 25 of those, but uh, our time is, is uh, waning down. So why is that? What's the problem with grace? Well, there, there are three problems. I'm going to give them to you very quickly here. The first one is that grace... Seems unjust. In other words, one person gets favor and another person doesn't. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's some per- person gets to cut at the front of the line or whatever. You know, I remember standing in line for a movie years ago. It was when Star Wars, the very first one, came out. It was in 1978. And, uh, And Marlene and I wanted to go see that very first movie. I can't believe it was that long ago, but um, we were in line, and I remember counting. They came out, and they said at one point in time, I overheard the guy saying, there are only 13 more seats, and I started counting, and Marlene and I were 10 and 11. And I thought, we're going to get in for this showing, you know, and so I was excited. Right before we got up to the front, there were four young guys that kind of came up and just jumped in line, And they got the last tickets, and we were left out. And I was so grateful for the grace that they had received (laughs) being able to do that. Okay, you know where I'm going with this. I was furious. Somebody else got the benefit because it was, a, it was a disruption to what we would classify as justice. And we see that all the time. It tells us in Luke chapter 4, at the end of Luke chapter 4, that Jesus came into the town and he healed everyone. It doesn't say some, it said everyone who came to him. But then there were still people, probably the most injured, that were at a distance, they were coming, and Jesus gets up and goes off into the mountain and pray, and the people who have the hardest time getting there get there, and there's no Jesus. And he says, we must go on to other towns and villages to preach the kingdom, because that's why I came. And what would you think that those people would think that it took me two days to get here and the family members? And they would say, well, wait a minute, some other people got healed, but what about what about us? And it looks kind of unjust. And so uh, I let a, a, there was a woman who was in our church whose husband was a womanizer. He was a gambler and he had alcohol addiction. So he was not a good, good guy. He didn't come to church. His wife did. She was Saved and she was doing so well, etc. And her number one prayer was what? That her husband would be saved. And, uh, and I, I inherited that congregation. I came in, and so that was an, a request I'd inherited. Well, I thought, I'm going to go share Christ with the fellow. And so I shared Christ with him, and I led him to the Lord. Isn't that great? It was wonderful. And he was so transformed that he started leading some of his friends to the Lord. And he liked to play golf, and he'd take me golfing. and he says, that way my pastor's got captive audience for four hours. Or you know, art sometimes the way we play four and a half. But... Uh, uh, so we're, we're out there, and we're, uh, you know, I'm talking to him, and pretty soon, he's so transformed. Uh, he gave up drinking. He stopped women. I started being the kind of father and husband that he was supposed to be all along. He gave up gambling, and he had a marvelous testimony about God's grace. And so I had him share that in church. And more and more people, he was sharing in men's groups and different kinds of things like that. And how do you think his wife responded? He started getting lots of attention. Now, she was asking for his transformation. She was asking for God's grace in his life. She left the church. And she said, how dare this congregation and these people give him all that attention? Do you know what we went through? Are you with me? I can tell you story after story about grace being a difficult thing. So it seems unjust. Uh, You know, there's another reason. It seems kind of inconsistent. It's not just a matter of justice. You'll see uh, in some situations where Jesus does things differently. Like I said, some people get healed, some people don't. I remember praying for two women. Both had metastasized uh, cancer uh, in their pancreas. It had metastasized. And if you know anything anything about pancreatic cancer, uh, it's a death sentence unless there's barring some marvelous miracle. And I remember praying for the two women one of them was miraculously healed and acknowledged uh, that of the Lord, and the other one, and these two women were friends, and the other woman we did a funeral for in about two or three weeks. You know, we can't figure out, I don't know about you, but you can't figure it all out. We, we know that, that God's got heaven waiting for us. We don't know, you know why some people are uh, delayed in accessing heaven, and some people are, it's expedited, and we don't understand, right? I mean, it—it seems kind of odd, and Jesus does that kind of thing where he does things differently all the time. In, uh, in Luke chapter 18, that's my favorite one of mine, where he heals a blind person. And he just, it's Bartimaeus, it's, uh, or in another one of the Gospels, it's just a couple of guys that are together. But he says to them on his way from uh, Jericho to Jerusalem, and he, says, he, he uh, stops and he says, receive your sight after he asks them, what do you want me to do for you? I, I want to receive my sight. And so he offers them and they receive sight. And um, that's a cool way to do it, just to speak. But then you got this situation in, in John chapter 9. And in John chapter 9, it's very different because Jesus spits in the ground and he makes mud and he wipes it on the guy's eyes and the guy has to go wipe it off. I mean, I would say, hey, I'll do the Luke eighteen thing, please. I don't like the John 9 thing. By the way, I have a son that, that he has got an eidetic memory he can remember everything. And I remember when he was a little kid, like these kids that were up here, and he was learning uh, this story in school. And he remembered every part of the story. And I was trying to get him through the story. And I said, so what did you learn today in Sunday school? Well, I learned about a man who was born blind. I said, that's wonderful. Yeah, but I'm not finished. He said, he said, uh, the disciple said, who was, who sinned? His parents or did he sin?'" that he might be like this. And Jesus said, it's not that he sinned or his parents sinned, but it's that God's works might be manifested in him or be done in him. And I said, that's nice, but I'm not finished. And so he goes on and talks about how the the... Pharisees came, and they talked to the man, and he said, well, I, you know, here's something. You're teachers of the law, but you don't know who he is, and uh, he said, all I know is once I was blind, but now I can see, and he went through, and I said, that's great, Mitch. He said, I'm not finished, so he went and they went and found his parents, so the whole parent thing, and then going back and seeing the man, and he says, what, do you want to believe too? The man said, he goes through the whole story, and then Mitch gets to the end, and he says, but dad, I don't believe it, and I said, why, and he said, Mitch said, because how could he be blind and work in a grocery store? And I thought, what on earth? Because my son never missed detail. Do you get that idea? I mean, he gets everything verbatim. And I, and I said, son, he didn't work in a grocery store. And he started to cry because I didn't believe him. He said, Dad, the teacher said he worked in a grocery store. I said, tell me what the teacher said. She said, I'm going to tell you the story about a blind bagger. So... Um, uh, but the, they uh, the, okay, well, he heard that one wrong. But so Jesus heals one guy by just saying, receive your sight. He heals another one by putting, but, and then in Mark chapter eight, it's totally different. He spits in the guy's eyes and the guy wipes it off. And he says, did you see anything? Yeah, I see people, but they look like trees. And then it says, Jesus didn't spit on him, but it says he touched him. And so this one you have just a physical touch and then you can see everything clearly. And you go, why did Jesus do it so differently? Because that's what Jesus does. Grace comes in all shapes and sizes and ways of healing and delivering, internal, external, etc. You know? And then it's a shock to the system. Grace is a shock to the system. Because we're so used to things going a specific way that we get it set up and when it doesn't go the way we want it. And that's how I'm going to close. I'm going to close by taking you to a passage, even the disciples couldn't always appreciate grace. In fact, grace pushed one of the disciples over the edge. It was his undoing. Grace was a disciple of Jesus. Now, I want you to listen to this. Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, they were only two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus. And uh, while he was in Bethany reclining at the home of a man known as Simon the Leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. It's expensive. And she poured, she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. In other words, there's no recovering this particular thing. She's broken. it. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? Could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. Like, that's what they really would have done with that. And they rebuked her. It just says some of those present. And who was present? It was his disciples that were with him. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, yeah, you're right. Yeah, let's see. No. Jesus said, leave her alone. And then he says grace words about this woman. He says, why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you'll always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. And he'd never said this about any of them, but he says it about this woman that's Uh, Susie come lately, just right there in that moment. He says, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. He'd never said of them. They'd left their nets. They'd done everything to follow him. And it was intolerable to at least one of them. This is the end of this this story. It says, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests, to betray Jesus to them. That's the end of that story. Grace pushed him over the edge. How could he be so kind, so nice, and talk about how not only that this woman is delivered from, obviously, a life of sin, but that she will be esteemed throughout all time, and who are we talking about right now? It's not Judas, unfortunately. It's the woman who's the recipient of grace. So this is... I think the point of all of this is when I go around, and I travel all over the world, and I see places of grace, and you know the ones that stand out? They're they're ones that are... The the churches who really offer grace to people who need it most are the ones who've received it greatly themselves. And the people that have just been kind of living their life and hoping that they'll get better, that God will do something good in them, etc., and they haven't really received an an understanding of how desperately they need the grace of the Lord, I've seen places, even spiritual places, even places with lots of Christians, that when grace appears in their midst, um, there's a little bit of resentment, hurt. You know, there's a story in the Bible about a prodigal son who went away, and as he's coming back, if you remember, uh, not everybody was happy about the father's act of grace in that story remember that in that story it wasn't a majority but it was a one-for-one thing the younger brother was delighted and the older brother who represents a lot of people who just have never experienced grace they have just worked really hard what my prayer for us as individuals and as collectively as a church is that we are a place where we understand grace because we receive it daily and That puts us in a position to offer it and give it greatly. Don't think about justice and judgment and all that. That's all in the hands of the Lord. Think about what can I do to bless someone else and celebrate as actively for them and their successes and their victories, even more so than I would my own. Isn't that what a good parent does with their child? You celebrate more greatly when your child succeeds. Places of grace are places like that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning. I ask God that your blessing would rest upon us, that all we do um, mirrors an understanding and a full appreciation of the grace that you offer. Thank you, God, for giving us what we don't deserve. We realize we live in a world that's a mess, and you're spending the entire time that we have uh, making good out of the horrible, forgiving the people who need forgiveness, transforming people that have been so lost, and even taking those people who have despised you and hated you and offering redemption and salvation to them. Lord, every one of us here are recipients of your grace. God, fill us. We first off acknowledge that we need your grace. Lord God, we need you. We need you to forgive us from our sin. We need, Lord, for you to deliver us from our punishable offenses. We need your grace. We need your mercy deeply. And then, God, as you transform us even more so, that we would be people who offer it greatly to others. So this is a place of grace. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Stand with me as I dismiss you just with this word that the grace that you've received...